to Chill and Ambitious, the podcast that points out shit you didn't know was relevant. This is the Life Innovator series. Life innovators are people who tailor their daily desires and lifelong passions to their everyday. And we hope they inspire you to do the same. I'm O. I'm No. And, and together, together we make Oh No. no. That was planted in my brain Still remains Within the sound of silence I'm not dumb but I can't understand Why she walked like a woman But talked like a girl Today we're going to talk about finding your truth. Yes. Um, it means a lot of different things to different people. Absolutely. It's such a personal journey. Um, and part of the reason that that came to be was um, because of today's guest, Joanna Fang, who is the first openly transgender person to win a primetime Emmy. Um, That's right. Yeah. She's super badass. Um, she's a sound editor and she's worked on... Um, she's a, specifically a Foley sound. We nerd okay. out about Foley. <laughs> Look, yeah, she's a Foley sound artist, which we'll explain what it is. Um, and she's worked on all kinds of amazing projects, including Cartel Land, Masters of None. Making a Murder. Yeah. Um, and so we'll just get right into it and let her kind of talk about her journey and what truth what, means to her. Yeah. You know, uh, it, there's a weird irony to it. Like the other day, not to be too, too personal, but I made out with someone for the first time, like in a year. Like I was in a long-term relationship and we broke up and then I had a year of just like hard work and like occasional date. But finally I had a date with this wonderful lady and what happened was like we were being a little flirty and there's a good pause in the conversation. And I was just like, can I kiss you? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, sure. Like I've been waiting for you to, to like kiss me this whole time. It was weird because when I was identified as a guy, as like a heterosexual cisgendered man, I never made the first move. I was too fucking afraid. I was just like, <laughs> nope, nope. Men do this all the time. Men are dicks. They'll, they'll just try to like step on a woman and just start trying to make out with them. You know, it's so privileged and entitled to me. I'm going to step away. But now that I have like the confidence of someone who's like living their truth and like living their life. Now I'm finally confident enough to just be like, wait, can I kiss you? You know, like this yeah. weird moment where where I, you know, that's adorable. It's weird. It's like so. It's so um counterintuitive. It's like I went from being like a no man, that's not okay. It's part of rape culture. It's misogynistic to being like I got that confidence. Here we go. You know, like it's very weird. It's like such a strange um, reevaluation. It's a paradigm shift. Congratulations, and on your primetime Emmy that you just won. Woo. Woo. Um, <laughs> Thank you. You are the first openly transgender person to win an Emmy? According to the Television Academy, yes, I am. That's so exciting. <laughs> it's very, very, um, it was very surreal, actually. Uh, we, we weren't, well, first of all, we weren't expecting to win, so. And you won for Cartel Land? Yeah, we won for Best Sound Editing Nonfiction for uh, Cartel Land, this wonderful documentary from a and &E. 
And uh, yeah, it was, it was a really, really weird experience. I'll be real. <laughs> what makes excellent sound design? Uh, telling the story, really, it's a little interesting because uh, I get the sense that people seem to think there is a different... Well, there's definitely different styles of sound design, right? We have the beautiful almost like uh, Wagnerian style, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's really over the top. You see that type of sound design in movies like, you know, Man Man of Steel. Um, you see that type of sound effects uh, style in all these really big Hollywood blockbusters. But the interesting thing about doing documentaries and doing sound design specifically for documentaries is that we often have to ask ourselves, um, We ha- well, the question that we have to ask ourselves is really how far can we how far do we have to take it to tell the story? Because yeah. we're dealing with real people. We're dealing yeah. with real scenarios. So and you don't want to, you want to like add depth, but if you go too far, it's problematic. Yeah. It's like, um, it's like natural makeup. Like you have exactly. to enhance the right parts, but without making it seem fake. Yeah. Because, you know, we have this kind of, um, we kind of have this uh, thing about uh, truth um, that we adjust a lot in Foley. The biggest thing being that, you know, I'll quickly just run through what yeah. Foley is. Foley is basically the art of creating sound effects live to picture. So instead of someone sitting at a computer pulling sound effects out of a library, um, I, I work with a team of Foley artists and Foley mixers, and our job is to, while the sh- film is being shown to us, create the sound effects live into picture and create the right perspective and the right performance so that that way, instead of just hearing footsteps walking around that sound um, cut in or sound faked, it has that real human quality to it. Mm. And so we do this, we do uh, 300 to 400 sound, unique sound effects every single day. That's what we do. So on a movie like Cartel Land, where, you know, you have militiamen running over shooting blasting their firearms trying to get these you know drug runners yeah uh we had to recreate all the sounds of the footsteps for every single person running around there's a really beautiful um beautifully filmed uh, gun battle sequence in the movie and it's all real like it's a documentary but in order to kind of give the viewer the sense of like the the immense gravity of the situation and the danger and all these other things we had to create fully sound effects to help fill it in you know that's it's really incredible yeah because if you didn't if you just took the the natural like camera sound, yeah it camera would've... it just it wouldn't have that heightened like, intensity which i guess maybe when you are actually there you know like things sound louder like if it was well, if something like that was really happening to you your your senses yeah, get altered you like remember key things and so it's kind of interesting to try to create that for the viewer yes yeah. exactly and th- that's kind of what drives me philosophically as a Folaris. like everyone has kind of a different way of looking at foley we're doing this really strange obscure niche art form that takes anywhere from five to ten years to train up someone to become a really good Foley artist. So everyone has their different philosophies. You get some people who are very adamant and they're like, Foley is custom sound effects that are created just for the film. You get people who believe in, oh, I'm looking for the character of the sound. If a cup is being put down, what's the difference between a sad cup being put down and a happy cup being put down? Um, You have people who are saying stuff like, I am the prop. Like a lot of people, uh, basically in Foley, besides doing footstep sound effects, we also do anything the actors pick up and hold. So there's kind of this notion of like, I am the instrument for the sound of this movie. But for me, my kind of philosophy is how, how do I create a sound that translates the experience of having done it yourself and communicate that to the audience to try to um, create empathy 
for a character. So if you watch a film without Foley, sometimes what happens is you just don't get a sense of tangibility. You don't feel like you're there. You don't quite connect with the characters. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you can kind of hear from the sound perspective of what the main character is going through, whether it's picking up something as simple as a phone, you know, texting texting their friends, for example, we have to redo that a lot because yeah. the little yeah. Yeah. sounds often get lost on set. Right. So we have to redo that. And especially for foreign releases where they're going to cut all the English dialogue out anyways. Yeah. yeah. We have to recreate those sounds so that some kid in like in, in China can watch Iron Man with like right. with Chinese audio track and still feel like they're there in the story. Um, mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, when we do it right, you don't realize we were there, but you get the sensation that you were in the room with the characters as things were happening. So it adds this degree of uh, uncanny realism. Um, and there are also a lot of sounds that don't really make sounds. For example, if I were to shake uh, Noelle's hand right here, it doesn't really make a sound. Like right. you, but there's yeah, but the, there's a tangibility of it. You, the feeling of skin, yeah. yeah, yeah. You feel the warmth. You feel that moment of connection between two people. Yeah. When you watch that on film, and you're not involved in the, you're not involved on set or one of the actors. The handshake doesn't register. You just visually see it. Well, I have a question. So then, huh. could you do that sound right now? Like, would you just rub your hands together? Yeah, sure. Like Actually, you can point this mic okay. right towards me, and we'll just bring it over right now. All right. So this is is kind of like a ooh, high high Foley microphone. I've, I have a, because it's a podcast and people can't see. I have a industry standard Neumann eighty one microphone pointed at my hands, and it looks like a gun. It it's a shotgun mic. It literally looks like a gun. Um, if you can just lower it down just a little bit. And so okay. usually when you watch people shake hands in films, you're going to hear this. You're going to hear, you know, nice and dense. If it's two men, if it's two women, if it's a child, like there's different <laughs> ways of doing it. You're lightening it up and taking it out. And that's the hard part. So much of this is muscle control. Me and my Foley mixer, uh, Nicholas Seaman, we have this, we have this, uh, uh, what do you call it, like our own lexicon of words to describe when we're recording fully. And, you know, sometimes I'll do something and the performance isn't quite right. Like a woman walking confidently down a hallway in high heels, she has like a gait to her. Right. And even if I nail the timing of it, you know, the rhythm of it's really good. It's like, if I don't perform it with the confidence and the yeah. poise, you can hear it. It's detectable. Um, the other crazy thing is, so we'll, ha we'll have, we have a rapport about, uh, ways to describe sounds to one another that kind of transcend your... Okay, so we have stuff like, okay, it has to be thunkier. Thunkier. Right? Like, so for example, if the character's getting punched in the face, we want weight to More it. More thunk. More thunk. Or we want, we, want, <laughs> we want the sound of that attack, but we need that extra bass to sell it like it was a serious hit. You know, if I do it too light, it's too ticky or slappy. So how would you do it? Mm. Would you just punch like your hand or like what would you punch like a, a ham or like a... Punches are interesting. There's a few different ways to do it depending on the context. But usually we create actually three separate layers for hand punches. We kind of have like a, a slap sound. Actually, if you want to point the mic, it can demo some of these because we've got the power of sound because it's a podcast. Um, <laughs> this is fun. Yeah, <laughs> this is really fun. Uh, but for, yeah, for hands, we usually, for hand punches, there's several different things you can do. Um, I didn't bring all the necessary props, but the first no, thing you can sh I can show is that we usually have like a slap track where it's just skin on skin, right? Because every punch we need like multiple layers to sell the heft. So the first thing you hear is like a really solid slap. Ooh. You know, so that, that goes in there. Thank you. Um, <laughs> And then we have kind of a thump. We want to aim this at my chest. So you can move it back a little bit. Okay. It'll be loud. A little okay. bit further back. And just stay right on axis. Great. You'll hear a thunk, you know? So it'll be something like this. Ooh. 
you know? <laughs> and then we might add, it was still very slappy. If, if I was working with my Foley mixer, he'd be like, Fang, this isn't quite working. We need to really beef it up, you know? And yeah. so I'll be like, all right, all right, uh, give me a second. And so usually what we do is we have a pair of really old leather sole shoes and we pop them up a little bit and we hit our chest with it, try to get that. And if we finally need that extra, just like, like fuck you, low end, we'll take a big old boxing glove and just hit it really hard with that leather shoe. All these things added together, once they're synced up, they sound like a very substantial punch. You know, so you got the bright bite, you got the you got the thump, the organic quality, like a chest cavity almost thing. Yeah. And they have that extra little subby low end that helps sell that. Like, no, it's not just like a realistic punch. It's a movie punch. Mm. You know, because if you watch if, if you watch people get in fights, not 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 that we do. Not, not that we have research watching people get into fist fights on know, the street. You go on World Star and just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Boston. You just go to Boston. <laughs> yeah, like one a.m. Yeah, be good. and it's funny because you go you go to World you go to World Star and you listen to a fight in real life, especially fist fights. They don't make. That much sound. They well, like, yeah. You're probably watching. Like, this is so boring. Yeah, I'm just like, where's the intensity, man? It's yeah. all- Unless you're in a fight, then because you're like, you're enraged, yeah. you can hear the sounds. Like if somebody hits you, it yeah resonates. Like it resonates d- within you, and yeah. that feels feels like a sound. Yeah. See, that's the interesting thing. People don't realize that the um the vast, uh, you know, it's kind of hard. I'm trying to not use too much technical knowledge. But basically, so okay, much we're nerds. Of, you're nerds. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, what people don't realize is that, right? For example, I have friends who buy uh, earplugs, right? Mm-hmm. And they always ask me, it's only rated to 33 decibels of noise reduction. Yeah. Why is that? And I explained to them that no matter how you block up your ear canals, that's the most you can ever remove from your hearing mm-hmm. is 33 from plugging up your ears. The rest of the sound you hear in your life, in your world, comes from bass waves shaking and vibrating mm. the bones in your body and shaking and vibrating your muscle groups and rest rest of what makes you you. Um, that's why you'll notice some people like to play drums with their mouths open. Huh. You know, because they're trying to get more, more vibration. vibration into their body. So when it comes to a hand punch, like you were saying, when you're in a fist fight and someone punches you, you feel that bass. You feel that oomph. You feel that point of contact. Well, and yeah. you think it's a sound. And it is a sound, but when you actually record it in front of a mic, sometimes the real thing doesn't have that experiential quality of having experienced it. You told me that you have an obsession with the truth. Yeah. Sorry. Clear my throat. Yeah, I do have like an obsession with the truth. Um, The biggest thing for me with Foley sound effects is that we ride such a thin line between, between art imitating life and life imitating art. Mm-hmm. Right. So every day when I leave work, I'm constantly looking at people walking the streets, learning their body language, watching how they walk. And I'm constantly asking myself, what do things sound like? What do things feel like to experience them from that point of view? And what's that middle ground between the two that helps me sell the sound while still being real mm-hmm. to the story? When we're working at the documentary, we're working with real human subjects who come from real places. And we can't, if we're going to give them sound effects, we can't betray who they are off screen. You know, yeah, sure, it's a documentary. It's still a story that's being told through curation, like yeah. edits and whatnot, manipulation, little little bit of manipulation to help tell the essential truth of something where the art of it, the documentary of it, almost tells a better, more understandable truth about something over what actually happened when they were filming it. You know, mm-hmm. like there's this weird thing where film as an art form is already curated. So in a documentary, we'll do tons of research. Like for example, when I worked on Making a Murderer, I called the Manitowoc County um, jailhouse, or not the jailhouse, excuse me. I called the Manitowoc County courthouse and asked them, 
what are the surfaces of your different courtrooms? Because we had to redo all the walking footsteps and making a murderer. None of it got captured on the camera audio. <laughs> yeah. The only thing that got captured on the camera audio was when they were um, on the stand. So we we're trying to get all those sounds. So I called them. I was like, uh, in, in your main courtroom where this person presides, do you guys have marble or do you guys have carpet? Is that carpet over wood or is it carpet over concrete? Like we, they're like, why? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, like, and they kind of ex- explain the whole thing. <laughs> it's a floor. Yeah, exactly. And write it all down. And then, you know, like I'm constantly, there's a saying in Folio Land you're either a magician or a scientist. Mm. And this is something um, WB Foley artist uh, Allison D. Moore taught me. You're, some people are magicians. You can give them freaking anything and they'll make it sound like something completely different. Mm. And then you have scientists who are people who are like, no, I need to get that exact 1972. Mm-hmm. you know, ignition from a Chevrolet. Mm-hmm. And they'll go on eBay, they'll try to find it, they'll buy it and they'll use it. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and and everyone else is somewhere in the middle. You know, because co- half the art form, most of Foley is cheating the sound, like we were discussing yeah. earlier. Yeah. What you hear is often not what you want to hear or what you experienced. So we have to find a way to manipulate an object to create the right sounds to help sell what you see on screen as being experienced by people in the screen. I think it's gonna be funny for your listeners because I have a really weird voice. Like clearly, I have a ma- I I have like a voice that's gone through male puberty, right? So I have like lower registers. At the same time, I you do have a higher like, voice. <laughs> you, I don't even think actually, like I wouldn't. I think just hearing your voice wouldn't be able to identify it as either male or female. It yeah. kind of like it passes both ways. All thanks, hon. <laughs> <You know? laughs> no, no, but you know what I mean. Like, and it's not about the. It's not about the the like how high or whatever it's it's more like that the behavioral it's kind of like the neutral i don't know it's almost like a neutral tone yeah yeah and that's the funny thing is when i was when i was when people identified me as male you know it was often the joke was like fang's got a really like high girly voice and the funny thing is now that identifies as a trans woman or not now i've always identified as a trans woman but now i'm openly transgender right. um a lot of people i, f- I always worry because i feel like the biggest thing that clocks me quote unquote it's a long story. Clock is basically slang for being identified yeah, as right, trans by right. others, right? And when I get clocked, it's usually because of my voice, hmm. you know? So sometimes I'll be really, if I'm at like a Taco Bell or in some place where people don't know me, where I'm, you know, I'm just yeah. a stranger, I'll talk in a higher register, admittedly, yeah. and I'll just be like, I would like one quesadilla, please. <laughs> quesadilla. Quesadilla. I and thought then, you were from California. Oh, I Joanna. am. I am. The Taco it's so Bell. much more fun. It's so guilty. And vagina. I guess yeah, yeah, you're, all, you're also getting it at Taco Bell, so it doesn't really Yeah, matter. yeah. And then sometimes <laughs> quesadilla. The quesadilla. Double dilla. Yeah. That's a new thing now, apparently. It's two helpings of juicy marinated steak inside of a cheesy quesadilla with a side of chips and salsa. Yeah, <laughs> this is now a Taco Bell commercial. Oh. <laughs> but um, if but, you hear us, Taco Bell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Support this podcast. <laughs> Send some to Joanna. Me yeah, and we're good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's like a real desperate, like late night. <laughs> El Farolito's clothes can't go there. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> but yeah, no. So it's like interesting because I have this voice. I'm really blessed to have a voice that is fairly androgynous. But at the same time, it's like interesting to um, realize that. So much of talking, especially as a transgender woman, you know, so much of uh, our presentation hinges on the fact that our voices sound are congruent with how we look. 
Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. so I have a lot of friends who are, for them, they have to go to speech therapists. They have to talk, they have to like, practice. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing that people, the biggest misconception I've met from a lot of younger uh, trans women is that it's all about pitch. Like you were saying, it's not about pitch. It's it's more about like word choice or behavior, like how you behave with the voice you're given. Yeah. Whenever I lose my voice, everyone's always like, your voice sounds so sexy. And it'll be like dropped down here. And I'm like, yeah, that's like, it's so funny because we always associate feminine voices with being that, but like they usually sound nicer when they're lower mm. still. You you ever notice that? When you yeah. use your voice, does everyone comment on how sexy it sounds? Well, yeah, it's that sexy, whatever. That like, <laughs> hey, hey, big boy. Like, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, Which sounds really unnatural right now. You can't. Yeah, I like can't do it, but when your, I lose my voice, it's like lyrics is Which is funny because when I do it, <laughs> people just freak out. <laughs> Hey there, <laughs> you know, like well, you can get the tone get all right. the way yeah. down, you know. But um, but yeah, no, it's it's really it's really interesting because you know Foley's the main thing I do, but I'm a very sound sensitive person. Well, that's what I'm gonna say. Yeah. It must be really interesting for you as uh, a trans woman and trying to correct your voice when that's also your profession and like you have so much insight into how to think about and how it works, right? And I even just the way you're talking about sound, I always think about this like with design like me and Noah are fashion designers and you know you uh, I think the average person will see like something like a button-down shirt and be like oh it seems more modern or something about it like they something use about adjectives. it is attractive and yeah the designer will know it's like oh well the placket's narrower here the stitch does you know stitch per inch is like you know at this you can tell the material like you know like the nitty-gritty things of why it's translating like that yeah well, other people will just be able to like get the general essence yeah of what it's yeah, like. absolutely. It's so funny because um, it's to the point now where when I watch when I watch a Hollywood film, you know, it's funny because in the in the Foley, Foley community is pretty small. Like in America, you have roughly about like I don't I don't want to say a number. I've heard somewhere around four hundred professional Foley artists, like in America, in North America oh. alone, and it's a really small community. And everyone kind of has like a signature sound. Like even the people. Like if I were to take my boss and throw him in a different Foley stage, he, he would still sound like my boss. I can identify it. Um, one time I was watching uh, what was the movie? I was watching uh, I was watching Beverly Hills Ninja. Okay. It was like the last Chris Farley movie. It's really dumb, but it's like a guilty pleasure of mine it was a childhood favorite. And I'm listening to this movie and I'm like, man, those footsteps sound really familiar. You know, so I was like really curious. So I asked my boss, I was like, hey, did you did you work on Beverly Hills Ninja? He's like, Yeah, that was like the, one of the first really big movies I did up at Saul's Ant Center. I was just like, Oh my god, that's really creepy that I can identify like you I could, I knew footsteps, his footsteps. His Foley footsteps. Exactly. Oh. And the result is I've never lived him down for Beverly Hills Ninja. So now whenever <laughs> we're working on something and it'll be like, oh, this scene has a lot of like um like cooking sounds. I'm like, yeah, man, just like in Beverly Hills Ninja when Chris <laughs> Farley is trying to cook the tabanyaki. When a white ninja, who ever heard of a white ninja for God's sakes? So it's like really, really cool to be able to do that. Like, it's just weird. It's like being able to hear that type of stuff and detect it and then reflect back on my life. Like um, one time we were working on this movie about Kitty Genovese, uh, that woman in Queens who got murdered in I think the 70s. Yeah, where like, it was like that whole like crowd, like the whole idea of like the more people that witness a crime, the fewer people will report it because they the responsibility mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. becomes on someone else. Yeah, that's the bystander that. effect. But that's what it's called. Yeah, the bystander effect. And one of the big plot... Sorry, I'm going to just adjust this headphone. Yeah. One of the big plot 
um, devices is that uh, Kitty, um, you know, she puts on her lipstick in the morning and she uh, puts it on this young girl who's in their neighborhood. So there's kind of this relationship with this lipstick and this moment of really tight, close intimacy between this this woman and this child who eventually ends up being one of the key witnesses in seeing her death. And the interesting part was getting the lipstick to sound right. You know, right, yeah. and it was awkward because this is before I came out to my coworkers. So I'm sitting there with, you know, my my work bestie Nick is recording me, and we're doing the scene where she gets lipstick put on, and uh, you know, I keep doing it. I do a bunch of different variations. I do like just a skin pass. You'd be surprised how much makeup in Foley Land is actually just the sound of skin on skin. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's like sometimes you take a brush, like let's say you took like a foundation brush, try to whack it against your hands yeah yeah, sometimes it just doesn't make any sound so to help sell it we'll do like Mm. you'll hear that a lot i mean you don't realize it because the the image and the sound kind of sell each other so you don't recognize it's skin on skin but for that scene we're trying to do this lipstick and i'm like i want to get that tackiness i want to get the mouthiness of it like i want to get all these extra textures that i know intimately because i you know i wear lipstick yeah yeah just they don't know that you wear lipstick. yeah and that's the funny thing because we're we're (laughs) debating it sound like it yeah guys i know (laughs) yeah exactly we're debating it and it was just like you know my 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 coworker was like oh man like it it's right it just sounds so like sticky and tacky and i'm like yeah that's what putting on lipstick sounds like and i'm trying to like not like out myself you know not not that he not like he's everyone in my company has been so chill with me being trans like it's actually kind of amazing because you know i was so worried about it and worked up myself so much about it being like i'm really worried i don't you know i've heard horror stories of um fellow girlfriends who've come out at work or who have transitioned on the job and they have these terrible nightmares but i'm like so privileged like the people i work with are so amazing and so sweet and so understanding that i've had like no problems whatsoever in fact more i've had more encouragement and support from them um and understanding so it was like really interesting to be afraid of that but the truth of the matter is at the end of the day when i did come out of the closet you know nick was like man that explains how you know what makeup sounds like so much can we talk a little bit about how you found your voice? Well, you were a- just talking about how you can you heard your boss's footsteps in a movie. Do you feel like you have that same signature? I feel like I'm getting there. It's so much of it's like based on training and who taught you how to do Foley and also the life experiences you bring in with you. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, I like to think it's kind of weird because um, everyone has a different style, right? I'm I'm working on it. I'm working on developing my own Foley voice, and it's already at an interesting point where, on one hand, when I'm when I'm switching seats and tag teaming a, a job with my boss, you know, I have to make sure that my Foley sound effects sound very similar to what he would do because mm-hmm. he's the lead artist. I am working underneath him, mm-hmm. and also at the same time, I'm being mentored by um, two Foley mixers. You know, I got Nicholas, who's like my main guy who I do most of my solo work with. But when we're working on the bigger films, our lead Foley mixer, Ryan Collison, is the guy who's sitting behind the mixing console. And he he actually has a very long background. He was trained in Foley by the guy who created the Foley scene in New York, Alicia Birnbaum. So Ryan's got this huge wealth of of taste and uh, and ideas as to how things should sound. You know, so a lot of what my signature sound is going to end up being is like a combination of my boss's mentality and his idea of what sounds good and also my mixer's ideas of what sounds good. 
So I'm slowly working towards my own like style, so to speak. But I've definitely, it's definitely interesting because sometimes I'll listen back to a project we worked on mm-hmm. and I can't tell. I'll be like, was that me or was my my boss? Mm. Like, I don't remember. But on the other hand, I I feel like I'm already developing a sensibility for myself. Um, I worked on Master of None. Oh, uh, really? Aziz Ansari show. Oh, man, love that show. It was one actually, it was like a big professional revelation for me because, um, you know, I've been working with my boss for about two and a half years now. And we did Master of None maybe about like a year ago, I think. Um, I can't quite remember. It's been a while. But basically, of the season of Master of None, there are about three episodes where I did pretty much everything. You know, usually I'm working like 60-40 with my boss. My boss do 60% of the Foley sounds. I'll be watching, observing, learning. Mm-hmm. And then we'll swap seats when he needs to take a break or he wants to watch me do something. So up to that point about a year ago, we were doing like a pretty good split, you know. And then on Master of None and Making a Murder, there are two or three episodes in each show where I was the lead Foley artist. My boss was completely hands off. It's like, I want to see you do everything mm. and just walk away and get a sense of where you're at. So I did um, episodes nine, 10 for Master of None. Uh, and then episode one, actually, I did a lot of it except for like one or two things. But um, but episode nine for me was like a huge revelation. It's the episode called Mornings. The entire episode is just vignette after vignette of Aziz and his, his girlfriend, girlfriend yeah. and all the mornings they go yeah. through. So on paper, you read that and you're like, oh, this is going to be an easy episode to Foley. Yeah. Right? You're like, it's just two people walking around in a New York apartment, um, getting in fights and doing stuff. And the truth is, it's actually super freaking hard yeah. because it's only two people. The only sounds that are going to be selling that scene are the Foley sound effects the dialogue and the background sound effects outside their apartment. So cool. Yeah. So every almost there's so much of that episode's Foley. So and I'm really happy to have been the one to work on it because they used like pretty much all the Foley we gave them. Like the boxes moving. Yeah, and they got you know yeah, them. like the it, like tossing in the sheets or like you know like there's the whole oh yeah the, there's that whole thing about her always like making a mess like leaving yeah. her shit everywhere yeah yeah I'm rewatch that with that's, that lens. <laughs> you know that's why you know that's why people ask like oh is it like cartel land or triple nine like all these like badass fun like they were fun to work on like really cool like heavy hidden films and those were fun and difficult in their own right but for what really gets me going is the small stuff like that What led you to Foley? Um, it was actually a really interesting story. Basically, when I was in when I was a freshman at NYU, we had this class, and if you talk to anyone who went to NYU, they'll tell you a lot about this class. It's called writing the essay. The professor I took it with was amazing. This guy Bruce Bromley. He's a comparative literature. Uh, he's a doc. He's a doctorate in comparative literature. Basically, taking one piece of literature and another, whether it's uh, a film or a opera, mm-hmm. and finding that shared DNA between yeah. them to help prove a point. Mm-hmm. And so in that class, we were comparing the works of Bjork, the music videos of Bjork, nice. with like Sontag, or, um, or uh, you know, or Plato. Something you know, really, yeah. Yeah, it was like really amazing to be like, whoa, I can like pull this one interesting piece of art from freaking Bjork and tell a story with like James Baldwin in the background. Like, yeah. This is a thing. And when that happened, I suddenly started going back into my my past. And, you know, I've always been in love with music and I've always been in love with film. I love making movies and I loved writing music. And one of the big questions I had going through college was like, how can I maintain a healthy relationship with both and make that my career? 
And so when I took that course, I realized that there's probably a shared bit of DNA between the two that I can pull out and learn to understand that and enjoy that that can help me in both. So I sat there and I was like, what it is about music that I love? What is it about filmmaking that I love? Filmmaking, I love the, dyna- the dynamicism. I love that when you're on a film set, you're working with actors. You know, if let's say you're the camera operator, you're like moving with the actors. You're building the frames. Like you're, you're in this heartbeat, this rhythm. Mm-hmm. When you're a boom operator, you're watching people's mouths and you're panning and twisting, pivoting, trying to get every single line on mic. Like there's this beautiful energy and rhythm to that. Like this organism that it's, you guys are all... Yeah, you're like beating. Yeah, so passionate about this. It's it's because it blew my mind. And then when I looked at music, I was like, "What do I love most about music? I love like those long, you know, drawn out phrases. I love at the same time I love like dance music. I love like I love metal. I'm a huge metalhead, and I love all those things. So it was weird to look at music and work at film. Be like, what is that shared experience between the two that really gets me like pumped up? Mm -hmm. And I realized it's rhythm. It's the heartbeat. It's the emotional heartbeat between the two. And um, when I realized that, you know, I started being more and more inclined towards creating sound effects for movies. When I went to NYU film, I eventually transferred to the film school. You know, I'd originally started off undeclared because I was like, not sure what I want to do. Do I want to do music? Do I want to do film? Like, I don't know. Who, who am I? Yeah. Who am I? Who am I? Yeah, yeah. Like Les Rob, right? I went to the film school and uh, they had a Foley stage there. And um, basically, my friend David Miller, who, you know, rest in peace, he passed away about the same time a year ago. Um, He's a really good friend of mine. He had all these 35 millimeter short films that had no sound. They were filmed in Prague with the NYU 35 millimeter program. (laughs) There's all silent filmmaking. It's all silent storytelling. So he was considered the the sound designer for my year of the class of 2013. And he had like maybe a dozen, two dozen of these shorts that he had to finish. And so he was really overwhelmed. So he found out I was a musician. He was like, hey, you know, Fang, how about you come into the Foley stage this weekend and help me do some of these? And so first, you know, I got, got on the Foley stage. You know, I'd already been teched on how to work the room generally. I didn't know anything about Foley, but I knew about the room. And so we started doing Foley sound effects. And after the third one, he got on the talk back and he was like, Fang, you're really, really good at this do you want to do the rest of the Foley for the rest of these short films with me? Would you like to collaborate with me on these? And I was like, yes, absolutely. So from there, that spark was laid. And when I started doing these Foley's for these, uh, Foley's, <laughs> it's a man's name, but we turned into like every type of word. But when I started doing Foley with David, I started just falling in love with it because it just had everything. Unlike being a boom operator where you're like panning around trying to catch lines, yeah. unlike a camera operator where you're defining the frame, a Foley artist is almost all of those things. Yeah. Right? You, every single character who moves, they need footsteps. Every yeah. single thing they touch, they need that sound. Yeah. So yeah. that rhythmic, emotional energy, the performed sound nature of it, the, the filming nature of it, the rhythm, the dance of it was so um, intoxicating. And I just got so into it. Uh, by my senior year, I was doing Foley pretty much every single weekend. Um, doing these four to eight hour sequence. Yeah, I'd be like, they're like I'm doing Foley. Yeah, they're like, Fang, you want to go to the party? I'm like, no, I got Foley, dude. Yeah. And so I got- Gotta get my fix of Foley. Exactly. I became like a workaholic. I still am a workaholic. It's like my biggest yeah, flaw as a person. Yeah, it's not um, a flaw. I'm necessarily a flaw, but, but. <laughs> It could be. But, um, but basically- It's consuming, yeah. It's so consuming and it's so enjoyable and it also starts making you see things differently. You know, I'll be sitting there watching, I, I live in the high rise, so I'll be like in the 31st floor and I'm watching people walking down the street and I'm just imagining to myself, what would it sound like if I was that guy? 
What yeah. would it feel like with that backpack on my shoulder and that the swagger and those big fucking, you know, boots? Like, what does that feel like? Well, well I have a question because like your, your obsession, I know you said you have an obsession with the truth, but it seems like, like you really love people watching and really just kind of thinking about that. Does that have anything to do with like, with trying to figure out who you were, like who you are? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's kind of hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. Um, I like how you worded that. I was going to ask something similar. It's funny. Yeah. We're talking about life imitating art, art imitating life. Like the first pair of heels, you know, as a trans woman who was like in the closet, like I knew I was going to transition. I've always known I was trans. Like since I was very young, I've, I've known like, okay, this is something that's going to have to happen down the line. But the first time I felt comfortable enough to go buy a pair of women's shoes wasn't for myself necessarily. It was because I really needed the sound of stilettos for a movie. Mm-hmm. So I finally like bucked up the strength to go into... Um, Go into trash and vaudeville at St. Mark's. It's gone now. Oh yeah, yeah, um, no, I- <laughs> but it, which is a story. You know, a lot of people called it the quote unquote drag queen story. It really wasn't. But at the time when I was a sophomore in college, I thought it was. So I went there like, I need your biggest heels for big man feet. You know, yeah. and I was like very nervously like being like, no, 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 no. It's not because I'm a drag queen or anything. It's because I'm. Tra- it's because I'm not even trans. I mean, I'm trans, but it's because I need it for sound I'm effects. I'm here for a movie. You got a t-shirt. Yeah, just yeah. To make sure, no one. Yeah, thought it was. And it's funny because. <laughs> My my boss and all of his contemporaries, you know, are most most of the New York Foley scene is made up of uh, men, it, but exactly. they are all shameless. You know, they'll they'll dig through dumpsters to find that right prop. Yeah, they'll go they'll go drive the streets uh, looking for that right chair. So, for me, there was this interesting moment where buying those heels, where it was like, wait, this is so easy. If like if I can buy heels. Why can't I buy all the things I want in my life? Like why can't I buy makeup? Why can't I buy you know, dresses, like it's not, it's not that hard, especially in New York. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in that sense, that kind of, that kind of helped reveal to myself what I was going through. All right, guys. So it's, it's October. So I wanted to demo some interesting horror sound effects. Um, one of the biggest tools we use in the Foley world is uh, this thing called a chamois cloth. Basically, they use this to clean cars and all sorts of things. It's a reusable sheepskin uh, cloth. I mean, it sounds like meat. Like ShamWow. <laughs> like ShamWow. Think ShamWow, but it's like the original, the original French version, so to speak. Um, but yeah, People often ask me, like, what do you use for gore? What do you use for, like, bloodshed? And everyone's like, yeah, it's on. Oh, it's a little bit low. If you want to crank up. Uh, not, yeah, crank that all the way. Yep. Uh, even more. It just, it'll max out. Yeah, okay. Okay, let me. Ooh, great. Yeah, okay. yeah it's great. <laughs> so basically, you know, um, there's only so much meat in the world you can buy. Because <laughs> of the joke I have. I've used chicken, back when I was coming up, I've used chicken livers. Uh-huh. Don't use chicken livers. It makes everything smell like piss. Um, I've, used, I've used grapefruit. That actually sounds good. You can actually eat grapefruit and it sounds really brutal. But the biggest, most useful thing we have is a good old chamois cloth. So I'm going to demo some sound effects real quick. One moment. So for example, you know, you hear someone uh, digging through someone's guts. It might sound like this. Where's the bomb? I think I found it. I found it. Let me pull it out. One second. Oh my God. Doctor, you did it. You found the bomb. 
oh, but it's counting down. Quick, put it back into the body. All right, all right, thank God, thank God. We're good, we're good. It's so disgusting. And it's funny, it's like really useful. It's a really useful prop. Like we've used it for all sorts of fun stuff. Um, when people puke, you want to bring yeah. the mic over? Uh, okay. So let's say someone's puking in the bathtub. And so what we'll do is we'll edit out the gush at the front, but we'll get the sound of the water dripping down. So it'll sound something like this. <laughs> but that's, that's one of my favorite, you know, people urinating. It's all the same... It's fascinating what you can do with one or two things. But yeah, no, so, so Foley's really fun. This one prop can get us so many different sounds. We've used this for, uh, you know, just the other day, I used this exact same prop for someone stuffing a turkey. <laughs> you know, like they're trying to get the butter in between the skin. So, one second. It's like this, it's like, you can bring the mic a little closer. One second, just a little extra water. Kind of sounds like this. Gross. Okay, stuffed, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, sometimes, you know, it's funny. It's like dirty sounds and sexual sounds and all sorts of stuff. Like, for me, that's like the oh most my- fun. Oh, yeah. So could you, yeah, let's hear a sexual sound. Okay. Uh, you guys want to hear, do you guys want to hear, like, um, one of my favorite sounds is, uh, so, so hysterically enough, you can, um, we, had a, we had a spring of independent films about young men finding themselves. So uh-huh. they all had a masturbation scene in them. It was like three films in a row. It was like really funny. We were like, we're, we'd watch these, we watch these movies. Of course, we watch these movies at least once before we record the sounds for him but every single time we sat down to watch it we're like oh let me guess he's gonna jerk it like yep so it sounds a little something like this if you can point the mic between my hands and my mouth somewhere like right yeah right there okay sounds like this this is like this is like a like a really grungy jerking off sound That's kind of rudimentary, but you know we'd have to we'd have to adjust it for for the for the project. That's it was very accurate. <laughs> and uh, so so yeah, with with these simple tools of the trade, we can create tons of sounds. But the last sound I want to let me see if I can get you this one sound. Um, but we also do bone cracks a lot. A ridiculous twist of serendipity. Uh, Noel had. Uh, bok choy but basically you want to do someone getting their neck ripped their neck broken off it might sound a little something like this <laughs> combined with a little bit of chamois it actually sounds really 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 good here's let me throw some chamois in the mix there's more there's more crunch to it but yeah. for let's do a head being torn off how about that all right this is a head being torn off head being torn off let me just get this whole thing going The sound of the blood coming out. Yeah, yeah, that was totally. And then the blood, and then the blood. Dead. Yeah, and then the blood dripping on like the counter. <laughs> this is so fun. Just getting so interactive. <laughs> That's Foley. That's fun. All right, let's clean up. I feel so bad. I like, don't, don't the worry. No, it's just water anyway. <laughs> And now a voiceover actor to tell you a bit about Breather. 
A breather is a well-decorated remote workspace you can rent by the hour with lots of locations and sizes to choose from. Oh, and now I actually record episodes in them from time to time. So if you need a space to work remotely, have a meeting, or do something that's no one else's business in private, use discount code CHILL at breather.com for $45 off your first booking. Thanks, voiceover actor. Now back to our interview. We got some vision love. Oh, yeah, this is my reality. Like a love camera show. Where do you keep your Emmy? <laughs> oh my God. Oh, this is, this is interesting. So basically growing up, I, I grew up with two sisters. Um, they're older than me and they're both very high achieving. One's a doctor and the other is a veterinarian. Yeah. So you can imagine like, yeah, these two amazing uh, sisters who are gone into the medical profession. And here I am, I'm like the filmmaker, like artiste type, you know, played yeah. rock guitar growing up. Um, the result was when we were all born, or we weren't all born at the same time, but when we were born, our parents each gave us one shelf in our living room dedicated to trophies. So there's a little shelf that just says Sonia, and it has all of her trophies. A little shelf that says Annie has all of my all of her trophies. And then there's a shelf for you know or my old name Jonathan. Yeah. And virtually no trophies. Yeah. You know, growing up, my sister was so high achieving. They'd win for everything. Every yeah. speech competition, every Chinese poetry recitation, every like <laughs> Taekwondo lesson, they'd bring home the fucking gold. Yeah. So their, their, their slots were filled. Yeah. You know, to the point where they started invading my shelf. My like, sh- you don't need this space. <laughs> exactly. So my shelf started getting popular with photos and it's not like it wasn't not like I wasn't achieving or anything. It was just that like, I just couldn't win trophies. Like I got maybe like a debate trophy once or maybe like one Taekwondo best effort trophy once. That was about it. That was about it, right? So for, so for years, my shelf was, became desolate and covered in dust and photos started filling it up. And, um, and Where so are you in the order? Of I was the at the siblings. bottom. I'm the youngest one. You're the youngest. So, so I got the bottom rack. Okay. So what happens was, what happened was I won and I went home and I took my Emmy and I put it in that empty slot on the trophy case. You're like, bam. That's mine. Like, you know, <laughs> Drop the mic. Yeah. It was so funny because my mom took, took, took some photos and she was just so cute. Uh, she, it was funny because my sisters all were like, yeah, you know what? That Emmy probably is like the coolest trophy we have. I'm like, yeah, of course it is. You know, <laughs> like, like it's not like a, you know, I didn't. You're I like didn't, my trophy shits on all y'all trophies. <laughs> well, it's funny because my mom, my mom speculated. She, my mom was like, hey, maybe what we should do is we should create a pile of all your sister's old trophies and then put the Emmy on top, top of, of it. it. Yeah. And then just snap a photo and like, that's it. Done. End of story. Um, but it was really sweet. And my mom was really supportive. She went with me to the Emmys. And the amazing thing is, um, uh, I wasn't out to, I wasn't re- like, I was out to a lot of my friends and I was very, I was very much publicly living my life as, as Joanna when I won the Emmy. Um, but the funny thing was I wasn't out to my extended relatives. I wasn't out to. Yeah. I was going to ask about that. How the- it was weird. And so what happened was when, when I won, I was on stage. My mom took a photo of me. I was wearing like a Vero, a beautiful blue Vero wing gown, and I had my hair did, and my face was all beat with like beautiful makeup. <laughs> and uh, my mom took a photo of me on stage, and she texted it to my ex- entire extended family on my mom's side, every cousin, aunt, uncle, and she wrote, "Jonathan isn't Jonathan anymore. Her name is Joanna, and she just won an Emmy." That's the way to do it. Yes. It, was, <laughs> it was amazing. What, what what ethnicity are you? I'm Taiwanese American. Okay. Um. I, uh, my family's Chinese, like Southern China, mm-hmm. but 
And like, so always whenever I like want to bring up something I know they're not going to like, I'm like, and... Yeah, yeah. Guess who got into college into all the top schools that she wanted to. By the way, I also got arrested for blah, blah, blah. And yeah, then- <laughs> it's almost like you have to package the bad news. Like it's like a shit sandwich. I'm still <laughs> successful. Yeah, exactly. Don't ignore, yeah. So, so, so it was really interesting because like my, a lot of my aunts and uncles replied back like, congratulations. Like what? Well, when did this happen? You know, they care about results. You're like, I got an Emmy. Yeah, it was so yeah. funny because it was like, I gave, I gave my mom a slam dunk opportunity and she went for it. You know, like. I, this is the time, yeah. Yeah, totally. And then, so it was really beautiful in that one moment um it was like undeniably like i am who i am there's no changing that you know i might be different than who i was six months ago what i was 25 years ago but here i am i'm surviving and i'm thriving and i'm joanna fang and i'm an emmy winner you know like yeah it was it was wild it was amazing (laughs) like it was just i couldn't believe it you know that's awesome your mom was so So supportive supportive. was that a process or was she just immediately kind of like Oh, okay. Was, I mean, it was a little bit of process. Process before I came out to the world at large, I came out to her like two full years before I came out to everybody else, mm-hmm. and mostly just to get her prepared for it. And she, you know, she was supporting. It was funny when she I told her, she was just like, "Oh man, um, no matter what, you're still my child. I love you. I just, I just don't know what to say." You know, is what she said. She, she was like, see, yeah. she, she was like, I, I never saw this coming, and honestly, I'm just not well informed enough to know how to address it. Yeah. But I still love you and I support you and whatever makes you happy, I support. That's adorable. So it went really <laughs> yeah, well. Like literally the best scenario you could yeah. ask for. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah, I didn't come out to my dad until literally three nights before the Emmys. <laughs> but, like, um, oh, when you see me on TV. <laughs> I'm not gonna, yeah, it was really weird. I'm Joanna. Yeah, exactly. By the way, I was so awkward. I had a, I sent him a very long email because he, he doesn't live in California. He is in Taiwan. I sent him a very long email because he was like, hey, I'm flying in from Taiwan to see you the night of the Emmys and the whole time I'm like running a Mrs. Doubtfire scenario in my head being like shit okay so I had to like put throw off the makeup and like you know look good you know like this whole thing I found was like this is dumb I'm I'm done delaying it so I told my dad I emailed him and it was just like a lot of stuff's been happening to me and this is something I've always wanted and blah blah, blah. and he's he's figuring it out he he's supportive but he you know Asian men and their sons have such a different relationship there's such a patriarchy in asian societies yeah typically yeah so it's like it's kind of weird for him to be like whoa i don't have a firstborn son anymore uh fuck you know what i'm yeah. saying like it's more like how does he deal with that in context of of like his relationships and like his world right exactly because yeah. he can now say like oh my son won an emmy Mm-mm-mm. give pause to that you know you had a daughter who won an emmy so yeah. it's like suddenly so tough for him to deal with but you know i can't I can't blame him. I still love him. He's my father. I have to be patient with him. Just like I have to be patient with my friends who are still, a lot of my friends are still learning how to use the proper pronouns. Mm -hmm. And it's not because they're bad people or anything. They love me and I know they love me. It's just, it's, it's a habit to break. What is the number one frustration you have? I mean, I know a lot of people get upset if people use the wrong pronouns, but it's like, is it they, she? Yeah. He, like he, what, what gets me the most upset, to be honest, is really, it's tough. For me, it's the idea that some people have gender so fundamentally set as binaries that they can't see me as anything else or in between. Mm. You know, like 
I'm in this weird state right now where I started hormone replacement therapy about a month ago and mm-hmm. I started dressing up and openly like, like dress, like I've always been, you know, dressing up in private and doing my makeup and presenting feminine in my own private life. Mm-hmm. But only like about two or three months ago, I finally was just like, fuck it. And just started just walking the streets of New York mm-hmm. the way I want to walk the streets of New York. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting because what really bothers me the most is kind of this strange, this, this absurd amount of misogyny that's in our society in general. Yeah. When you put someone who's transgender into it, you immediately challenge their- Their like, masculinity. Exactly. Yeah. You challenge their masculinity. You challenge what they perceive is female. And you realize that our entire society has this strange notion of what makes a woman a woman. You know, you hear about these fucking like HB2 and all these laws that are policing. They're actually, you know, trying to police perception perception of gender. Like if you are a transgender woman, you've, you're legally listed as female and uh, all this wonderful, you know, not I won't say wonderful, but all this stuff that was very heteronormative. No one's going to ever bother you when you walk into a bathroom. No one's going to even fucking check. Like how, what's, what's the police going to do? Take a chromosome test of every single person walking into the bathroom? Yeah. You know, not just that, but you know, how do we define what a, what a quote unquote woman looks like versus what a man looks like? Well, and it's so much more problematic for a trans woman to go into a men's bathroom where we know that like most of the aggression that, that happens comes from comes from male, Man. from masculinity, yeah, exactly. right? Exactly. Um, it's actually like, less, it's less safe. It's less safe. Yeah, absolutely. And it's just really, it's really disconcerting because the basic logical arguments are so easily destroyed in court. Like when they, when HB2 got challenged in, I think the, the Ninth okay. Circuit Court of Appeals recently, the judge was just destroying the, the fucking, um, the, uh, what do you call it? destroying the uh, opposing lawyers, you know, the attorneys. It was just like, oh yeah, that's what you think defines a man or a woman. Well, how about this? How is this enforceable? And I think for me, that's what bothers me the most. Isn't so much as, it isn't so much the words, it's just the attitudes that people have towards women in this country. Like it's- Absolutely. It's absurd. You know, know, everyone, it's like, it's like when when I was a guy, like there's so much male privilege, like even walking around, not being harassed by people constantly, not having to worry about shit. Like the pink, like the pink tax. Oh yeah. Oh my God. You know, like- Everything's more expensive. Yeah. So much more. It's like they're punishing women for, for- for for just being women. Yeah. You know, it's like I can go to Kirkland Costco and buy like a 12 pack of men's black V-necks, you know, for like uh $12, 20 bucks. Yeah. Same exact same shit. Yeah. Exact yeah. same shit in the women's section. It's like a $40 purchase. Yeah, we tax feminine hygiene products. It's not like we can it's not like we can forego them. Like we tax them like similarly to like cigarettes and like alcohol. And we can't talk it's, about periods uh, either. We're not allowed we, to advertising around uh, menstrual cycles is the same tax they use to talk about cigarettes because you can't talk about the actual thing because you can't actually talk about like if you do all of a sudden with cigarettes you have to talk about all the the side effects yeah. and they're always trying to like advertise in this way without actually talking about it Ugh. and so like same thing with periods oh it's, god the, the thinks campaign well it caused such an uproar because yeah. it was so the you know thinks like period proof underwear yeah. I mean I don't know if I'm really down with buying those but their advertisements they had like grapefruit like you know placed yeah. Um, as like a metaphor for, you know, for a vagina. And uh, the MTA pro- opposed it because they were saying, oh, it's too vulgar. But like, if you go in any of those where they're like, getting bigger tits, like there's literally, <laughs> yeah. they, there's literally like advertisements that are like just super sexual, like classic, like, classic surgery. surgery. Or right now there's that, uh, is it a Pixar movie about a hot dog? 
That's like oh, clearly oh has God, all this innuendo like about it being a penis. Yeah, yeah. it's like DreamWorks. Sausage party. Yeah, and it's clearly going to like, and that's okay. And literally that was what they were upset with some of the things campaigns because they were having like a peach, which looked like a vagina. It wasn't even an actual vagina. It's just, it's just like talking a, about periods and yeah. having representations yeah. of vaginas. Oh and that was really offensive to everyone. And I it know. was done very like tastefully in the yeah, sense of like, it's, yeah. really abs- was, it's really abstract still. Yeah. yeah. Like it's, it's fucked up. I can't, you know, yeah. it's just the ordeals that women, like, and it's funny because I, like, you know, I, back when I, back when people identified me as a guy, I I knew that shit was going down. And I was, I'm very much a feminist and out for it and proud for it. But it was just like, to now have to be through that process, not to say that like, oh, I'm a woman all of a sudden, you know, like, but to kind of have to, for me to kind of earn my, my womanhood and then to see the flip side of it has been, it's, that's really what's distressed me more than, than anything else. Like if someone, people will misgender me. People will call me tranny. People will call me faggot. Like it'll happen. Yeah. But then, but then to see like, like then to, for me to play completely into my, my, my gender identity is to also see like the oppression that women go through just fucking breathing. You know what I'm yeah. saying? Like it's, it's absurd. Like that's what gets me pissed. Cause do, do you feel like people in your life treat you any different? Like you said that at work, it was like normal. Like everybody was like, it was like, Oh cool. Great. Like no problem. But do you feel like anybody in your life has like treated you extremely differently it's, that you kind of had to cut out? It's funny because on one hand, my, my employers were really, really, my company was really chill with it, but there's definitely like a learning curve. Like for, for, for sure, there was about a week where we had some, we had some issues figuring out pronouns and yeah. some stuff about like behavioral stuff that we started noticing. And it's funny because I talked to, you know, we talked about it, we worked it out, you know, like it, it's just, it's part of, it's part of the complexities of having, and it shouldn't be complex, but it just is. But having someone transition on the job, it is a complex thing people have to get people used to stop words. listening to you <laughs> you know it's funny because it hasn't that hasn't been a huge problem at work but i've definitely noticed that like i'm part of a lot of facebook sound forums uh-huh. and most of them have most of them have women and most of the men on those forums are very very feminist and like very much want equal because they know they know the job doesn't require you know um ovaries versus yeah a dick yeah. they understand that so most of them are pretty supportive but you know every now and then you just get that one person who just is so entitled to 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 your opinions or is so dismissive of your opinions you know like they just feel like they can just waltz in and say shit to you yeah like i, I you know i used the funny part is looking at the type of cold messages i get on like linkedin mm. for certain things you know some people are like hey i was just wondering like you know do you got some free time do would you like to meet up for coffee stuff like that versus like i need sound effects now Mm. you know I've definitely noticed there's a slight change in at least the way people who haven't known me before address me because I think they're introduced to me as a woman they no. haven't experienced me with male privilege as a man right so they don't so it's interesting because I feel like a lot of people are now having to have to be like how do I interact with Joanna differently like the question's been flipped for them you know yeah, versus just like human that would make human. you feel <laughs> and they're probably coming from a good place wanting to make you feel comfortable exactly because I've seen that happen with other friends who are transitioning who and it depends on the individual. Some really appreciate almost the hypergenderization, like all of a sudden being called like babe and being interacted in this way and like almost identifying with some of, you know, some, some of the, the misogyny. Yeah, some of the misogyny, <laughs> yeah. honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In some ways it makes like, oh, like I'm, I'm passing now and stuff. And like, and you know, other people are less about just, you know, what, what that societal implications are. But it's, it's interesting because, 
as a result, yeah, it, it's a very different world. It's not just how you identify. It's yeah, definitely. yeah, because then it's like becomes your whole yeah. The way everyone relates to you changes, and then you have to deal with the whole like. I feel like Ex- for me personally, as a woman, there's this whole acknowledging it, but I also can't really go through life being obsessed with it because then if you start blaming everything on your womanhood, then you're not building yourself as your own too. You know, anytime I'm like something doesn't go my way, oh, it's because I'm a woman. You know, like that's yeah. not constructive. Yeah. You know, and not really like what what bothers me about that because it's not just oppression from it's not just rejudgment of other people's criticism just because of being a woman like there's a million different ways you're oppressed right like as, a, as an Asian woman or as yeah. a woman of color um, what's that what really hurts me and makes me sad the most is the fact that you know yeah sure everyone has to kind of like just put their foot down and like succeed like no matter what was handed to you you have to do good you know yeah. right like you kind of have to clear that shit out and just do a good job my problem is that especially younger people who are um, getting woke, quote unquote, um, is then they start judging all the criticisms that are levied at them. Mm. And, and yeah, judge that criticism. Think about the criticism that's being levied against you and say, is that because I'm a woman or is it because I'm African-American? Like, yeah, of course, that's healthy. You should do that. Yeah. But then what pisses me off is just the very fact that, that you have to doubt someone's critique based on who you are what pisses me off is the doubt that cr- that's created from that. Absolutely. Yeah, like, absolutely. Like yeah. I have so many friends who are so talented and they're so, I'm so sad for them. Not sad. That sounds so patronizing, but I'm so worried for them because, you know, for them, they live in these rallies where they can't tell if the criticism is coming from a place of genuine, you know, non-racial, non gendered point of view or if these people are being dick bags because you're black or because you're transgender or and then and then there's or there's so many messages well exactly that so they're not ma- consciously aware of and it's true like where we live in a like sexist racist genderist whatever yeah. like society and a lot of it is just you know, I've caught myself sometimes doubting what other women say because I realize I'm like oh I'm just so used to programs to like be like, oh, it, is she really? Is, is she, she being it, a bitchy? Is she being bitchy? Or, or like, yeah, or what her, is her point of view in a way that I may not question a man in the same way? Yeah, you know, and I'll, yeah. and like I'll catch myself doing that because that's just how we're programmed. And uh, it's it's funny because so I actually recently did this presentation at a conference about like Gen Z and how they're thinking about gender fluid fluidity more. And it's interesting because there's all these. Um, like celebrities and influencers who are talking about being gender fluid just because they don't want to be put in the box and otherwise maybe another time they would just be like, I'm a woman or whether yeah. it's, even if it's Miley Cyrus or even Jaden Smith. Like Jaden Smith. Who it's like, but the thing is there's still a mismatch. We're still marketing as in a bi- binary world. Like the toys are still like more hyper gendered than ever, like pink for girls, blue for boys. There's still these messages. So what ends up happening I, when I was interviewing lots of Gen Zers is like, they want to say these things like, oh, I'm all about like, yeah, you know, transsexuality is cool. Like I'm being open, but the behavior still mismatch where it ends up being like, there's when you separate from such a young age that boys are like this and girls are like that you make it seem like that they're inherently different that yeah. there is that they're separate that you can't relate to them uh you so you see the separation of like kids in middle school and um high school like thinking that they're completely alien that they can't relate so it's just interesting that it ends up getting these mixed messages where we're trying to be more open and progressive but there's these other underlying ways because we well, and it's we don't also talk like anymore. I feel like people's bodies are so hypersexualized lately. Like this, like there's like men are now feeling that like now 
companies are starting to tap like women's women are fatigued from like the beauty market, right? Like we're, we've exactly. been told our whole lives, we've been told our whole lives, you need to shave, you need to lose weight, you get, you know, makeup, makeup, like whatever, right? Beautify yourself to this standard. And we're kind of over it, right? That's why now you have those dove, like those dove commercials that are like, oh, be you, blah, blah, blah. But men, now we're starting to market towards men, right? So there's that hyper, that like hyper masculinity of mm-hmm. like what, like rip bods and whatever. And then you have like- Sporn of sexuality. Yeah. And then, and then you have Instagram stars popping off where it's really about like how wild is this woman's body? Like, mm-hmm. you know, like Kim Kardashian and like Cardi B and whatever, like all these, and then just Instagram Instagram, quote unquote, models, right? Yeah. So, like, there's this, like, view of, like, this is what it looks like to be an attractive woman. And this is what it looks like to be an attractive man. And, like, it's so, like, and they Hyper feminine and hyper masculine. Yeah. Hourglass. It's, uh, like. Yeah, hourglass, like, super big boobs. And, like, and I'm not, the, not shaming anybody's bodies. Like, those are, like, things that you kind of can't really you're either bored with them or you're not, right? Or, or you you're can not pay, bored with them and or you, you can pay, lots pay of money. like, yeah, n- like you can Nicki Minaj it or whatever. And like, but it's so out of control that it's like, yeah, you want to have these ideals that were all fluid, but then like the, you're right. The messaging is like, so it's so like left and right. Like, it's not even like where before it was like, oh, like there's just all these different kinds of hot people well, right just, and those are those visual cues we don't yeah, talk about, about it anymore yeah. like if you looked at like using toy ads again when you look at before the 60s it was very much like little girls will love this little boys will love that we don't in when they when the hyper generalization of pink and blue happened after 1984 which is because uh the fcc reduced um the limitations on how much you can advertise to children they pretty oh, much threw it out so like all of a sudden we can advertise the shit out of kids yeah yeah so then they started, you know, that's when you see the super hyper genderization. If you look at Legos, for example, it used to be a gender neutral thing. They started doing boys and girls and then doing like boys being really violent and girls always being about appearances. But you didn't see, it was just, it was just signal. You didn't need to say, this is the toy for girls. This is the toy yeah, for boys. Yeah. You that's, just knew from the cues. That's one of my favorite things about the Power Rangers. I always think of the Power Rangers, the Power, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers is like a big Mighty deal in my Morphin life. Power yeah. It's Sorry. funny because people don't realize that that whole show, there's two really interesting facts about that show. But the first one is that the company in charge of it besides Saban is Bandai, a toy company. Yeah, They're trying to sell toys. You yeah. know, right? The show is really to promote exactly. the toys. So He-Man, all that. All was, that. Yeah. Same with Transformers. But the funny thing about Power Rangers is you look at how wide the demographics they're trying to hit with that first season. Mm-hmm. They got they got an African-American character. They have a they have a, a Chinese girl. They have a white girl. Mm-hmm. They have like a white guy. They have, um I forgot how Jason's native. Everyone jokes that Jason, who's the Red Ranger, is Native American because the whole color is like yeah. yellow, yellow girls, the, the yellow Chinese girl. girl. It's almost like... <laughs> the dis- black ranger. Yeah, it's yeah, almost... The to- pink ranger. It's <laughs> so blatant. It's totally... Organization of each character, but it was so effective. But at least it, but at least it, repre- it had like a, a representation. representation. And yeah. that's a sunny thing. Peel skit. Yeah, yeah, where it's like you will be the the black ranger. And he's like not the black ranger. He's yeah. like, can you stop calling me a oh, black falcon? Yeah, like, yeah. Stop calling me black yeah, falcon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, and th- that's that's like one of my favorite things about the show is that it's like so much interesting stuff to be learned from that. But the biggest thing is that how Kimberly's the pink ranger, right? Yeah. Trini's yeah. the yellow ranger, and it's like to sell toys, they had to market so wide all boys and girls of all different races come buy your stupid power ranger toy and fling yourself around and have fun yeah you know and they made huge money where the people in charge of thinking like no it's gonna be uh it's gonna be empowering the kids of all different 
races and, and genders. It's like, they weren't thinking that. They were trying yeah. to sell units. No, you know? but representation matters. Like visual cues matter. Yeah, like and that's, visual cues matter more than any. And that's why I can't, that's why I feel so, and I don't want to say torn about it. I love Power Rangers, still do. It's like, it's good. You know, look at that and plus like Captain Planet. Like sure, it's tokenizing. <laughs> oh, yeah. cool. They got like one of every, one of every, like mm, one of every type, yeah. but it like was empowering. Like to watch the Yellow Ranger go kick ass. You know, and be an Asian woman was like, damn, I want to be the Yellow Ranger. You I, know? Lo- I love that you're talking yeah. about that because I think that's always the conversation about just representation of minorities these days. Like, mm-hmm. you, were ta- you mentioned Fresh Off the Boat. Yeah. Are you a fan or not a fan? I'm a huge fan. I'm a fan too, but I've heard the criticisms because, you know, I, I have. I have Asian friends who are just like, I don't identify with any of that, you know? And in some ways they're like, just feeling like it's this like other, like just, it wasn't authentic to them and then playing up on certain stereotypes. And I'm like, honestly, some of them are true. And also just the fact that it is being represented and having that conversation out there. Like, I really like that and appreciating it, but because it's so limited, you're not like, yeah, it's going to marginal. You're, it's not representative of every Asian American's yeah. culture well, like, experience. I, the thing I there. don't like about that, because I tried to like it, because I know you like it, but and the, I'm not an Asian. I'm not like a an East Asian woman. I'm yeah. a Middle Eastern woman. But and I did grow up a lot around tons of Asians. Yes, like Filipino, Chinese, everybody. But what I feel is like it has the lens. Of, that show has a lens, kind of like Full House. It almost feels like like hokey white like television from the eighties. Well, it and nineties. And so like it sounds like a like. Like, it sounds like someone who's, like, trying to, rep- like, replicate Fool House. And, like, so they're, like, the punchlines are kind of cheesy. And, like, it feels very, like, white. Yeah, it's, like, it's, and, like, like, bad white. You well, know I mean, what, I mean? what is the structural, the structural, <laughs> the, structure, the structure they're deal- that they're using, the family sitcom structure is, like you were saying, it was designed and prototyped off Full House. Like, it was designed and prototyped off of, like, Caucasian families. The thing that makes me like Fresh Off the Boat, despite sometimes the fact that it does play up to stereotypes, yeah. is the small things it nails. Yeah, like, you know, like yeah. the big, competition with the yeah, sisters, yeah, yeah, the, the perms, the yeah. power perms of the 90s. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. The whole, like, the whole... Um, and also in surprising ways, kind of like the race relations. I remember early on in season one, there's a whole sequence involving the um the like the only African American kid in the school and like yeah. you know, Eddie and how they get they, they start their friendship at, like almost as nemesi because they're both the only minorities in the right. school. Oh, they're both the only minorities in the school. And um it was really fascinating. I was like, damn, like they nailed the small details. It's like that one scene. Thank you for adjusting my microphone. It was like that one scene from um from uh from Do the Right Thing, which is still like one of my favorite movies of all time. It's great. There's that one scene after they burn down, they're burning down Sal's when uh, they turn around and they're now redirecting their anger towards the one Korean grocery. It's so true. Yeah, and, he, and he's saying like, Fight black! Be black! Be black! Be black! Why you black? Be black! black! Be you me same! You ain't black, you know, mm-hmm. you're white. And that's kind of like this cultural issue that mm-hmm. Asian Americans tend to have is that we're privileged yet still oppressed. We're we're white but we're like we're not black but we're not white yeah you know so like we get all these privileges but we still don't get quote-unquote full privilege that most white families get so it's like weird to have a show like fresh off the boat where well yeah we can examine this but at the same time we're still playing off of the vocabulary and the language of tv sitcom that was established mostly to serve caucasian families but you know what i think is an excellent excellent family sitcom show that was like based off the full house not like but d- just kills, blows it out of the water. Blackish. Love Blackish. Oh, you like Blackish? 
But I think it's, but maybe it's because you relate to some ways on some of those things more than yeah, like, I, yeah. than some of the Asian stuff. Because I think that is true for like, there's the really over the top stereotypes and sometimes it's played up more like, you know, even the accent of the mom is like, okay. And then also you were saying it's meant for that white TV sitcom. Um, the, the real, like Eddie Huang's. Uh, well, he was really mad about the show, how the show. Yeah, he didn't out. like how it turned out. And his actual dad in the in his memoir, it's a lot more drama. It's, it would be, I mean, not appropriate. His dad's like a lot more of this patriarchal dad that you're talking. Like, I mean, I yeah. imagine your dad's probably there was a, a lot a more domestic violence, honestly, like in mm-hmm. in their relationship. Like maybe they didn't actually say like his dad actually like hit his mom's, but there was a lot of just like, oh yeah, they would get in these fights where they would throw things and da-da-da-da. Like, that was not... And he's a total... In the in the TV show, though, it's like this hokey, like... like uh, Demasculinized. Yeah, demasculinized, yeah. man, which is totally this idea of how white people a lot of times see Asian men, too. They don't, like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. They make him, like, this Taiwanese gangster like he is in the... In, in real, real life. life in yeah. Real life. I think it's because they know that if they went... They, like you were saying, if they went that direction, the show wouldn't be as funny and lighthearted as it was. It would be, like, a really... You know, it's funny. They always talk about, you know... I don't think it's discussed often, if at all, but kind of, like, the... the, the and not to say this happened with my family, but the sort of domestic abuse patterns that occur in Asian American families, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's fascinating because it's it's so dark and it's so there's such a culture of saving face in Asian cultures across the board that they don't want to address those type of things. You know what I'm saying? Well, like, and it's it's shameful, right? So it's shameful. like you never tell your family's business, right? Yeah. Like, because I mean, I have I've if like friends who I've heard stories and I know yeah. how hard like their parents were on them sometimes physically and yeah. like it's like but you would never ever say that out loud well you and I guess that's why that feels inauthentic maybe to me and I like I said I'm not I'm not Asian American so I can't speak on it but it does feel like that stereotype where like I think you and I have had this conversation where um how like there was that that okay cupid study that's like Asian men are like the least desirable or whatever and I'm like and I hear a lot of that from Asian guys, like in the East Coast, but not on the West Coast. Because like Asians just are cool on the West Coast. Like <laughs> you just grow up, like everyone's cool with like at least where I grew up, everyone is cool with each other and you're so used to growing up together that it's not like you're not like limited by the Bay Area the, the, is the, a bubble in that way. Uh like it just seems like when I talk to uh at least like Chinese Americans in the Bay, like they can actually have their community people. They're seen not just as like, Oh, the Chinese girl or like, like people see them as an individual in the way you see white people, you know? And like, and a lot of them are DJs and like throw parties. And like, that's kind of like the Steve Aoki's of the world, so to speak. (laughs) Less Steve Aoki, more like, uh, more like, um, DJ Qbert and like, you know, like that kind of like the hip hop scene and like b-boying and whatever. Um, like so all, to me, like, like all Chinese American culture comes from the West Coast first before it comes to the East Coast, which like, is which is pretty fascinating. I grew up in Southern California, so it's like I totally know that. I remember when Fast and the Furious came out; it was like so mind bending <laughs> for so many of my friends because they're like, "Yo, that guy's Asian." Yeah, <laughs> uh, one guy's like, Han. You know, like they start freaking out, and then then slowly and surely, all of a sudden, you see all the dudes are driving faster and faster cars yeah. and like modding AZN. their cars. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where's the NOS bra? You know, like this weird. It's like oh, all yeah. of a sudden they felt like there was a real culture they can express themselves with that didn't necessarily feel like it was co-opting from black culture or white culture. You know, it was, it was, it was, that was the interesting thing for me. It was just seeing 
like I, I was just joking with my friend Ashley, who's, you know, he's this great choreographer and, you know, he's, he's gender nonconforming in the opposite way that I am, you know? Uh, and it was funny cause he wrote in some strange ways, I'll never be able to get the, the basic white bitch out of me. <laughs> and then I wrote back to her, yeah, in some ways I can't get that Asian otaku boy out of me. Like there's so many <laughs> things that like, that we identify as masculine, like watching anime and like eating ramen and treating ourselves poorly, <laughs> like, like being stubborn about shit. Like, like uh, Asian men tend to be so stubborn is what I've noticed. Like, I don't know, I don't, not, not, I don't want to generalize in terms of like our generation or Gen X or even Gen Y, but I noticed a lot of my Asian American immigrant friends and their fathers, their mm -hmm. Asian male fathers are so fucking stubborn. They're so, they feel so entitled to their power and the patriarchy that mm -hmm. they feel like they're constantly right and everybody's wrong, mm -hmm. especially women and uh -huh. people who aren't Asian. <laughs> uh -huh. So it's like really weird to, to, to suddenly be in that position where, um, I no longer have, not just cause I'm no longer like no longer a guy, but not just cause I'm no longer male identifying and also because I'm no longer, um, Asian. I'm just kidding. No, because I'm still Asian. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 when I said trans. Yeah, yeah. I'm transracial. I'm transracial. Oh my God. Rachel Dolzoff. But it's funny. Yeah, no, it's weird to suddenly lose, lose that clout I have with other Asian men. You know, uh. it's not, it's not a huge thing to be honest. Most of my cousins and most of the people I don't, that I hang out with, they're, they're very chill, but it's weird to see that the older generation of Asian men, you know, it's, oh, it's cute. They're treating like their daughter, which is yeah. not as great as their sons, you know, like kind of, kind of accept that weird positioning. Versus, yeah. What's so funny you're saying about the, the stubbornness. Uh, I had a really intense conversation with my dad once um, who I maybe a few years ago kind of realized how it's not that he treated me actually like a man but I somehow like found them some escape hatch in terms of like how he treated my sister and my mom which mm -hmm. I was in some ways oblivious to because mm -hmm. I remember I would hear stuff from my mom and sister like complaining about how he treated and like it was a conversation I actually had where he was actually like talking shit about women in this way and how he kind of was like oh you just need to manipulate them and I was like wait wait I'm a woman. like why does he think that this is okay to say to me and talk to women about that and after that conversation about the stubbornness, I had this other one where he pretty much said so my dad got remarried and there were certain things that he just wanted us as children to fall in line. But like me and my sister were kind of like the way he was going about it was just really like presumptuous. Like, mm -hmm. like who is this woman? And like, why do you expect us all of a sudden to treat her like our moms? And it's not like we're children. This happened while I'm in my adult life, you yeah, know? Yeah, exactly. So it's like, yeah, I think she's gonna need to show some respect to me as well before I'm completely like, you know, and we got in this big argument. And then later on, I was kind of like, you know, we give you the benefit of the doubt a lot of times because you're, because you're from Hong Kong. And I kind of, I guess maybe I didn't mean to be like patronizing about this, but I was kind of like, like, we just know you're really Chinese. A lot of times we kind of like let you go, we go along with some of your assumptions. Yeah. And, and, you know, uh, I don't think that, you know, like, we just, I don't think this is fair. And, like, I'm trying to give you the benefit of the doubt about that. And he, like, didn't realize how we were catering to him. Yeah. And he actually was like, no, we're in America. Like, I don't want to have special treatment. We're adults now. Like, we should have conversations. We should resolve this. And it was this big mind-blowing for him. Because you were being patronizing to him. Yeah. Because like, <laughs> yeah. he didn't realize, like, we were just, like, coddling him in this yeah, way. Because yeah. we were like, oh, he's Chinese. Yeah. He's not going to get it. Like, yeah. he's just going to be like that. So whatever. We'll just work around him. It's tough because it's like <laughs> you have such a thin line and a balance you have to strike. Because he's still your father. You still love him. Like, um, 
I, I noticed this with me and my sisters is every, every me and me, all the Fang daughters deal with our parentals differently. Yeah. You know, some of us are more embracing of what our opinions of our, of our parents are. Some of us are a little bit less. And the biggest thing I've noticed, and you know, I was talking to my sister, she, she and I were saying like, how do we avoid the big blowout fights at every family reunion? Like there's gotta <laughs> be a tactic. And I told her the tactic is if they say something that's offensive or that hurts you or whatever, just walk away. Just be like, that's them. Yeah. You're not going to change that. There's no, there's no point in getting a fight over it. Yeah. You know, just take a moment, take a breath, and just walk away and just accept that. Like, okay, whatever. That's what happened. It's shitty, but you don't want to be the what do you call it? The perpetuator of, um, of tension. You know. Yeah. But at the same time, you run the balance of oh, I don't want to be patronizing either. Like, I still have to have a fucking backbone and like make a stand on certain things. You well, know? well, that's how I dealt with him in high school, and actually, that's when I'm getting my mom and sister. Shit. I'm like, that's just how he's like. And honestly, if you get what you want, which is really like for me, I'm very like, well, yeah, I want this, and I want him to support me on that. So I'll just tell him that he's cool with that, and yeah. then he'll get on my, and then he'll be on my side about this, and like, but I guess. The way it's funny, like, I don't know if your parents said this. My dad actually really is, like, excited about America because he's, like, like, you know, they left communism in Hong Kong. So, like, there's this kind of, like, he actually really embraces, like, entrepreneurship. And actually, he really wanted, my, like, you know, me and my sister that we were going to be financially independent. Like, you know, that so we don't need a man in that way. And, like, so in his mind, he thinks he's very progressive. And maybe compared to his peers, he is. Mm-hmm. So I'd always frame things as, like, American. So, like, when we had conflicts, I'm like, this is an opportunity for us to resolve a conflict and move forward. He's like, I like opportunities. And I'm like, <laughs> That's so cute. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, moving forward. Like, it's funny, almost like, it's almost like he was teaching you how how to manipulate women the truth of the matter was you're actually quietly manipulating him presenting stuff in the way he wants to see it and that's the tough part it's like um it's like I it's remember, like that big fat greek wedding yeah oh my god yeah. the man is the head but the woman is the neck yeah. and she can turn the head any way she wants totally and that's the crazy thing about society you know that's the crazy thing about this patriarchy we live in it's just learning to survive because you know I've got friends who like we were saying kind of concluding a few subjects we're talking about a few friends of mine who who are very aggressive and angry about the way they're oppressed in this country and you know what I agree with them it sucks let's fight it at the same time it's like yeah but shit man you gotta eat like, <laughs> yeah. we gotta, you gotta have a place to sleep and, like where do yeah. we draw the line where what is acceptable for us to how far do we have to play into it to have the successful lives we want so that we can keep on fighting the oppression yeah. you know like and that's the thing for me because someone asked me like why didn't you transition earlier like why'd you wait you know you already no, knew why about did it you, why'd you, yeah why'd you wait why'd you wait you can just go right down to the sex change robot and get it done no but what was like a lot of friends were like yeah we're like we were a progressive high school like why did you wait through high school and all the way through college mm-hmm. i'm finding more and more of my friends are 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 coming out after college, which is fascinating because mm-hmm. in the back of my mind, pop culture says that college is where you come out, you know? Well, and I've realized it's so funny. It's I I actually think I people think, aren't as experimental in college as they always make it sound. Oh, maybe. yeah. It's not till you like go live in a city, you have to be on your own. Yeah. Because you yeah. have like this group of like, you have like you end up in the same group of people always. And like yeah. you need to be accepted by those people. And like, or maybe that's where it starts compared to high school, but it doesn't also, end there. I also think <laughs> no, it's no. also financial dependency too. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah you're totally Absolutely. right. Absolutely. If you come out and your parents aren't cool with it. Then they cut off your supply to college, you know? Yeah. And that's that's why I it wasn't I didn't I didn't wait to come out because necessarily because of that I mean it was definitely a fear that like oh if I came out and started transitioning during college my 
my dad or mom might freak out and pull and be like, no, you come home immediately. Cause they're in some way still, even though I'm like, oh, I'm 19. It's like, no, they're yeah. kind of still yeah. in charge of you, yeah. kind of still helping you out. So you have to yeah. do what they want. Um, but Indentured time, servitude. <laughs> yeah, you know, not, not, but like, <laughs> sort of, yeah, yeah, I would have to agree. You, there's definitely some sort of like tit and tat you have to play with your parents, um, especially if you're not able to afford college for yourself. Right. But at the same time, it's just so interesting to to realize that how everything shifted because of it, you know? Uh, I didn't come out because in a lot of ways, I, besides being busy, like I was doing Foley every weekend, like mm-hmm. I was so caught up in this whole exploration of what I want to do as a person, not necessarily as a woman in society or a man in society, but as a person, as a human being, what do I want to do to make my bread? You know? Yeah. It, so for me, that was more essential and, and, and meaningful than my gender. But at the same time, it was just like, I almost wanted to wait it out and see you know, I don't want to say cash in on my male privilege necessarily because it was shitty. I, you know, it's terrible to stay in the closet for as long as I did. But in a lot of ways, it was kind of like, sorry, in a lot of ways, it was kind of like I wanted to um, succeed, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, you can call me a sellout if you want. But, you know, I got, it, that's the hard part. It's like, I got my internship. I succeeded through college for all these and did so well. But at the same time, it's like, fuck, if I had, if I had transitioned in college, how would that have all turned out? Yeah. Would I be among the 44% underemployed transgender women in this country? Would I be part of the, I think it was like, what, like 10, 14% mm-hmm. on a straight up unemployed transgender women in this country? Mm-hmm. Like I was really lucky. I had, I balanced my privilege. And that's the thing I have to tell a lot of my friends who are trans or otherwise, like, mm-hmm stay woke but at the same time understand that you're given this really tough car like hand you're given a tough hand and you have to play the game you know you have to find ways to survive Mm -hmm. you know if that means if that means being brutally honest and quitting a job that doesn't support your transition you got to do it you got to find a way to live you know live just fucking live you know whether that's being out and trans or or you know Reevaluating where you work and ask yourself, will they be okay when I transition? Like that's a whole nother fucking ball game, you know. Right. I was lucky. I I played my cards exactly the way I wanted to, and I suffered for it. You know, I won't tell you how many times I woke up depressed or wanting to kill myself. Like I tried to commit suicide in like 2005. You know, when I was in high school, I tried to hang myself. You know, and I talk about it openly now because it's like, yeah, when people say that about almost 55% of transgender women have tried to commit suicide. Yeah. It's true. It happens. Yeah. It, it's this terrible thing that just drives you insane, especially while you're going through puberty. You're going through like male puberty. Like for example. you're Yeah, you're loaded full of hormones. Yeah. And you're conflicting messages about being yourself and not being yourself. Mm-hmm. You have no onus over your own body. Yeah. Like you're just watching these things happen to you that you don't want. There's like kind of safety and androgyny when you're a child before you hit puberty but the moment you hit puberty that's a lot of breaking points for a lot of people I want to thank you so much Joanna no problem for being with us and sharing your story is really was, awesome it was a really fun conversation I am blown away that we um, were we able to yeah. go through so much <laughs> I quickly. Know. so yeah no it was crazy how much stuff we ended up going through um, so what if people if people wanted to get in contact with you could they yeah absolutely um find me on facebook <laughs> on i am facebook? the most addicted facebooker of all time oh my god really? find me on facebook it's joanna fang you can't miss it no other joanna fang. there's no other joanna fang who's we'll a foley artist we'll post her too don't worry yeah we'll totally um but yeah but thank you for having me this yeah. was this was so much fun is there anything that we should be looking forward to um uh shit that's such a great right. opportunity for me to have a shameless plug but um 
uh, True Memoirs of an International Assassin comes out November 11th on oh, Netflix. Um, it's one of the most fun action films I've had the privilege to work on. And uh, Cartel Land is available to watch whenever you want. So if you want to hear some really awesome sounds and get, get a little extra insight into what I'm talking about, definitely check that out or Master of None. Cool. Awesome. Thank you so much, Joanna. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Girls will be boys and boys will be girls. It's a mixed up world. I'm sugar This is a God dream. God dream. This is everything. Uh, so, wasn't <laughs> it convenient how she, Joanna Fang, was using Foley to understand the truth and then her whole transition in going from a man to a woman was understanding her truth? Don't you think that was convenient? I do think so, but I think that <laughs> that's why we maybe we're not consciously aware of why we are interested by things, but we follow those interests and we learn about ourselves and people. And maybe it's it's the approach too. Yeah. Well, like how she said um, the first time, like she had to buy shoes for like fully sh- shoes to for to do fully like women's heels, and like it was like. Sh- it wasn't that scary then after she bought them. Like it was for work, but then she was like, oh, was that easy to buy a pair of heels? Yeah. And that's, <laughs> and she seems to constantly have this questioning of the truth in that way. Like in her mind, it was true that everyone would just completely out her if she went to go buy shoes and that she would be ostracized and da 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 da. And she was in a fortunate situation where that, that wasn't the case. Yeah. And also I think that some, I mean, maybe if you live in, in some more conservative or there's definitely places, even in San Francisco, that's not super conservative. Like transgendered people have been like, that's why they ended the gay pride. um, Like there was always a party in the Castro and they ended it because of um, guys who would hit on trans women and then Hmm. find out they were trans Mm. and there were like shootings and murders. Mm. Um, because even if you have like a tolerant, safe space, you can't really re- ex- you can't c- account for how everyone will react. Um, Not at all. But then it's kind of re- what a relief, though, right? To realize that like most most people aren't going to really have a problem with it, at least in her world. Yeah, um, I actually I don't remember who the artist was that said this, but I went to this guitar. Like, this uh, this show where the artist was saying how one of his determining factors on whether or not he writes a song about something is if he gets that feeling where he's like, everyone's going to hate me if I admit this to everyone. And that that feeling is actually usually the signal for him to be like, well, then I have to write it. And that's... And to every, tell the truth, right? Yeah, and it's always the stuff that he gets most celebrated for and uh, ends up winning him awards and all whatever but that's so funny it's i think that we sometimes worry that our um that like by being who we are it's going to discomfort other people so much but i think the majority of the time people are are just so focused on themselves and the fact that they're not living their own truth that it's like yeah and it ends up inspiring other people that's ends up why it's ends up being celebrated because actually ends up being relatable especially with art you know it's supposed to talk about the things that 
society generally doesn't let us or tells us that isn't cool. Uh, but we find out that more people than just ourselves a lot of times have those same exact emotions. Totally. Um, I really, some of the things that I really took away from Joanna, I was like, it's so funny. It seems like, I don't know, I feel like she, she seems like she's lived her life as a woman, her whole life, because she seems so comfortable in it. Yeah, there was like a, the speech there was, patterns. <laughs> a little bit, just the cadences and then well she said that she always knew um but i just think that you know she was like i kind of think what's interesting is that she said she always knew and then she kind of made a a plan for her life trajectory was like Mm -hmm. how much more difficult would her life be if she lived openly this way at this at different points in her life like how how much and she had a certain place she wanted to get to where i guess knowing who she was and then being certain people knowing that in her private relationships was good enough for her until she got to a place um, career-wise where she felt that she could be confidently go out this way. I agree. I actually really admire that about her. Yeah. Again, to tie that back to our theme about truth, it seems like she had a very like balanced way of looking everything. I think it's really easy when you uh, are marginalized sometimes and not to judge people who are like that, but just to really be um, like shaming people who weren't out and, in public about what your uh whether it is coming out in an lgbt kind of way or just owning your minority ship you know and shaming that if you didn't you know and she seemed to be very conscious of the you know the many factors of what goes into it and when she did it and always acknowledging how it's like it's code switching yeah um pretty much but now she's like at a very, you know, who's going to argue with her Emmy, you know? <laughs> I love that she's like, I kind of, you know, milked that male privilege for a while until I got to a place where I just couldn't handle it. And she told me, just was like, yeah. And then, I mean, that was so cool too, where she literally gets to kind of like Eddie Murphy pretend to be white for a day, you know, yeah. where like, <laughs> except the opposite. And then her actually, you know, transitioning to becoming a woman, which she she very much passes. Yes. Um, you heard her voice, but just like seeing her. And, uh, actually getting to experience some of the things that she had heard about as a man of how women are treated and then actually to to feel what that means and that whole uh questioning of your truth you know of that oh she yeah didn't is life actually, that much harder like do do people not listen to you in meetings do you like you know do you get undermined because sometimes? your voice is higher that yeah. somehow it just there's this like unconscious bias and it's actually i mean it's not not that men need to validate it because we all know it's true, mm-hmm. but it is actually very comforting to know that <laughs> not comforting, but like that it's that it's so like that it is very visible the second somebody puts their their like their themselves in your shoes. Mm-hmm. It's just there's a strange comfort, but not that men need to validate it. Yeah, but- <laughs> <laughs> like not crazy. <laughs> Um, I also appreciated that she was Asian. We had some Asian talk in there, (laughs) which was fun. (laughs) And uh, the whole saving face and the layers of that um, and shame and how that factors into just the whole experience uh, was, I enjoyed that part. Yeah. I think, I don't know. That was a really insightful conversation. She was so open to about her hardships and her past and um, coming to terms with herself. So I really 
appreciated that openness. I'm such oh. a nerd about Foley. I loved it. Though. Yeah, it was so we talked about it for so long. And then she she brought her props to like come make sounds. It was super cool. We actually talked about it even more. We cut out good amount. <laughs> There's so there was so much, um, but it is really cool though um, that like. She's kind of in in learning about how, like, even just, like, the conversation about, like, how do women walk? How do Just observing people kind of, like, I think that we are all on this trajectory or we're all analyzing other people kind of, not necessarily out of jealousy, but just to, like, see, like, what's great about this person, whatever. And then is that something that I should be or I can be? Totally, Right? What can I pick up from that? And it's, like, building building yourself up like you can literally you know you can choose to take on any other things yeah. and it's not it's it's questioning how true they are how do they work within you yeah and like that's really like it's not imitation it is finding your truth but it's like totally. you kind of have to try on different things and that makes me even think of the part where she's like I can never get that little otaku boy out of me <laughs> yeah and actually I I think that's what I was getting at earlier about what I admired in terms of how she viewed not being out for so long and that seemed like she really came to terms with it. Like she was like, oh, it's hard. And she wasn't completely like, oh, I, some part of her did seem like she wished she came out earlier, but she didn't seem like, I feel like I've met people who are just so sad they didn't come out much earlier. And it seems like she is just very even about the fact that she had a lot of male experiences growing up because she was man, like a man. And that is, that still shaped her. And she was still knew though that she had that mismatch of who she was physically and um, mentally, but we are ex- we're influenced by society. Yeah, you know? but uh, there's also, I mean, definitely she talked about how she had some hardships with it in the past, but then it's almost like she also kind of, I don't know when this happened, but like, you know, she, she at some point embraced... Well, process it, it seemed it, like. Well, em- well embrace the the things she could get out of, yeah, out of that life that even, you know, not focusing on the fact that she just wasn't being a hundred percent, you know, getting to live life openly as yeah. a woman, but that all those other experiences and maybe experiences of being treated as a man or yeah. whatever were also worthwhile. Yeah, totally. Um, so, so we can make our own, we can find the, we can find the good in. She fully in accepted every, the whole yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah. And you, that, that's part of the, I think, coming to the truth. Is yeah. Like accepting the truth. Yeah. Accepting your own truth. Yeah. Uh, um, and then, you know, and maybe not being so hard on yourself when you're, when you're not exactly at the place you want to be or how right. you see yourself or mm-hmm. feel that you are and where, you, but not, mat- not aligning with where you are mm-hmm. and kind of being able to make a plan for that. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. and so that's really, I don't know. That's very endearing. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. So, uh, this week's, um, shout out is an, I, a new iTunes review that goes, that's five stars, perfect niche and spot on hosts with chill and ambitious Olivia Noel. Oh no have tapped into the niche we all want to hear from. People who actually seem to be making a living doing what they love. But not only have they tapped into this niche, they bring to it a tone that is somewhat addictive in style, blending their own both chill and ambitious personalities. The entire Life Innovator series is a huge win from episode to episode. Even the soundtracks are on point. You can tell these ladies 
too. Love what they're doing in each episode, making it that so much more enjoyable. Additionally, they've created a pretty awesome community of seriously magical people. I encourage any listener to hit up a release party or find a way to get involved through social media or otherwise. (laughs) Oh, man. Oh, no. Certainly have hit the bullseye across the board with this one. Yeah. Yeah. We do have really good parties. Good addictions. Um, (laughs) So we'll let you know next time we have one. Um, Yeah. All right. Uh, So make sure you, uh, yes, just like our review said, uh, contact us on social media if you have anything to shout out or questions or what you want to hear more of. Yeah. It's at Chill Ambitious on all the social medias. And chillandambitious.com. Yes, it is. I'm O. I'm No. And we love you. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Boys who like boys who need girls who need boys like that girls who